Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. And I'm Christopher Hong, the new audio producer for EdTech Examined. Chris and Eric are great friends of mine, and I'm thrilled to be part of the project. We're trying a new audio editing style and would love your feedback. You can contact us through any of our usual channels, such as Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And you can get in touch with me at my website, chrishong.ca. That's C-H-R-I-S-H-O-A-N-G dot C-A. For this episode, we have the one and only Dr. Jason Weens, who I must say is one of the best professors I've had the privilege to study under at the University of Calgary. Without further ado, this is episode eight, Digital Literature. So welcome to episode eight of EdTech Examined. Uh, it's my pleasure to conduct this interview with my colleague, Chris Hans. Uh, today, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Jason Weens, who's a senior instructor and associate head of undergraduate student affairs at the University of Calgary's Department of English. Thank you, Dr. Jason Weens, so much for joining us. This is a real pleasure. Thank you, and my pleasure as well. So we have a, a few questions uh, set up for you today. So just to, as a background for you and our listeners, uh, Chris Hans and I have set up this podcast mostly in response to what's happening in higher ed and it, with COVID-19, but we're reaching out broadly to instructors who have a fair amount of experience teaching online, working with education technology. We're really interested in getting that wide variety of perspectives uh, from folks who have that experience. So. Uh, our segments today are pretty straightforward. Chris and I have a, you know, written a, a fair number of questions, and I'll, I'll kick it off. Though we don't, we have a pretty loose structure here, so him and I will just jump back and forth uh, freely. And then we have some uh, rapid-fire questions uh, for you later. So the first one, just to introduce yourself, would you be able to tell our listeners a little about about yourself and your background? So perhaps uh, your educational background, your background in teaching, research interests, etc. Yeah, um, I did my PhD actually at the University of Calgary uh, in the late 1990s and then uh, continued to teach there as a sessional instructor. I've also taught on other campuses, including Mount Royal University um, and uh, the University of uh, Northern British Columbia. Um, my area of uh, research interests and uh, main area of teaching is uh, Canadian literature, although I've taught um, widely across uh, the curriculum in my department. Um, Poetry would be the genre I've probably published on the most contemporary poetry um, in particular. And uh, I became tenure track in 2013, became tenured in 2016, uh, the same year I became uh, associate head. And in this past year, um, I had the opportunity to be interim head uh, in the first six months this year when um, the head of our department, Jacqueline Jenkins, was, uh, was herself on, on leave. Um, so I've been able to um, sort of look at things both from the perspective of a part-time instructor and then a, a full-time uh, instructor, and now from uh, an administrator who doesn't teach as much as, as uh, he used to. And I'm interested in, in your role as, as associate head of undergraduate student affairs. What is the primary focus of the student affairs aspect of that? Well, I, I mean, uh, it's it's uh, the other sort of title for that would be sort of a director of the undergraduate program. And so um, I chair the undergraduate programming committee, um, which determines question, uh, sort of uh, determines the future direction of uh, curriculum. 
Um, every year we have major or minor sort of changes to um, our, our, uh, our catalog offerings, uh, for example. Uh, but I'm also the sort of face of the department in response to student concerns. We have um, a couple of advisors in addition to me, but um, I'm always uh, sort of on a weekly basis in the advising office, uh, helping students sort of figure out, uh, sort of plot their, their degree uh, paths. Um, if on the rare occasions students have um, problems with instructors, uh, they come to me first, and if it's serious enough, I will bring it to the heads', heads attention. Um, I deal with uh, great appeals. Um, I observe uh, my colleagues uh, who are teaching. I observe graduate students uh, who are teaching and provide provide feedback uh, there. Um, we're undertaking a curriculum review this uh, this coming year, and. Uh, and also, I occasionally will organize uh, workshops. Uh, for example, last week we organized a workshop um, and invited someone from the Taylor Institute to come in to talk to colleagues who were interested um, about um, doing, say, multiple choice exams online, uh, which uh, which Chris here would uh, has some has some familiarity with. So I mean, I don't know if I even covered all the duties there, but uh, but there's a there's a lot. So both uh, interfacing with uh, students, but also with my colleagues in uh, questions uh, con uh, concerning the undergraduate program. It's a cool role because it it seems like not only just administrative, but there's probably a great mentorship component. Absolutely. So we've been fortunate enough in the past few years um, to hire uh, new colleagues on a regular basis, and so I've. Uh, been able to sort of help them. Uh, a lot of them are coming from different backgrounds. A lot of them are coming from, say, an American educational system. Um, sort of help them sort of hit the ground running uh, with their uh, with their new course designs. Um, that's another thing I do is I approve all course exam or course outlines and also all final exams. And that's been it's a lot of work, um, but it's actually a great opportunity to see what my colleagues are doing in terms of innovative assignments and uh, innovative exam questions in my, uh, my younger uh, or newer colleagues uh, in particular. Well, I think that's a really good point, especially when looking at syllabuses and seeing how people are approaching assessment and stuff like that. And as someone who scholarship is largely based on open education, I'd be curious to know uh, some of your thoughts are about that. And I think I, I have a feeling we'll probably end up coming back to that because I have a question about uh, innovation later. So our audio engineer Chris uh, recommended you to interview here today and so a big shout out to him because I think uh, this is really special to get someone from the humanities and I think this is a, a perspective in online learning at least from my point of view as a librarian having worked with many many different departments that is I would say often underrepresented so a, a question I had for you is a is is a little bit about your experience with online and distance learning. So I was told that you've been integrating distance learning even into your face-to-face -face courses for for some time, and there's some strategies for that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your journey towards online teaching? Uh, so how you first got interested in perhaps a, even a blended model or offering segments online, and how, if at all, that has impacted your teaching style overall? Yeah, so um, we were approached actually by um, the vice provost of uh, teaching and learning on, on the campus and by the uh, associate dean of teaching and learning um, in uh, the faculty to see who might be interested in English in designing online courses, primarily uh, for um, delivery to non-English majors, primarily uh, as elective courses in programs like medicine, uh, education, and, and others for students, um, uh, let's say in social worker education, for example, uh, who don't necessarily live in Calgary. So the impetus there was really um, 
to meet the needs of distance learners. Um, so it was really more um, the university came, came to us. Now, I was interested in um, designing an online course for, for a number of reasons. Um, one is that uh, pedagogical innovations is uh, sort of expected of someone in my, in my stream. I'm in the instructor stream. I should probably clarify that. Um, so the professorial stream uh, faculty on campus, at least in our, fa in our faculty, um, have a teaching load of, of two and two. And their, their uh, responsibilities break down as 40% teaching, 40% research, and 20% service. Uh, whereas instructor stream people in the uh, faculty, uh, their, their teaching load is uh, three courses in fall, three courses in winter, and one course in, in spring. And so their, um, their responsibilities break down as 70% teaching, 20% service, and 10% uh, research. Now, many of us in the instructor stream, I would include myself in, in that, do far more than spend far more than 10% of our time on, on research. And in my, and in my um, administrative role, I, my teaching and, and um, service uh, commitments have basically inverted where I'm doing about 70% uh, service and about 20% about teaching. So sorry for that sort of digression there. My point is um, that instructor stream people, um, and in our department, two of us, two of the three of us that are designing the online courses or we're designing the online courses are instructor stream people. We have a um, incentive um, if we want, wish to advance in our careers to uh, develop new courses, to develop new, new assignments, and to develop new uh, ways of, of teaching. Um, so so that's, one, that's one reason. Um, a second reason is, um, as Chris will know, uh, I'm increasingly, I have been increasingly uh, asking students to develop assignments that, um, where, they're, where they're sharing their work with each other, not in the kind of conventional group project um, or sort of oral presentation format, because in many years I've, I've saw, saw that, that format, in my opinion, grow rather stale. Uh, I think all of you who, you know, been through school yourself can probably attest that group projects are not popular. Uh, people don't feel that they're fair. I, I've, you know, I don't know if the class uh, that are watching group projects necessarily um, are getting a lot out of it. Um, and so I wanted to find ways to develop assignments that encourage peer learning, because I still believe in peer learning. I still believe that students learn very well from each other. Um, and so I found that um, some of the assignments I've designed, uh, such as our archive assignments or, or uh, working with online audio, um, and using the, core, the learner management system, the uh, D2L in our case, to sort of share their work with each other was a more effective way of, um, of encouraging peer, peer learning. So that's a pretty long answer to, uh, to, your, to your question. I will also add uh, that I have, a I have also a personal reason uh, for wanting to develop an online teaching capacity, and that is uh, I'm in a long-distance marriage. My wife um, lives in, and works in, in Malibu, California at Pepperdine University. And so if I'm able to um, teach online, uh, uh, you know, in, in certain semesters, then uh, I can be down there with her more, uh, more often. That's very interesting that I never thought about faculty being personally long distance and then the, the, the value of being able to be flexible and teaching remote. It kind of speaks broadly to what's happening right now with people fleeing cities to the country in the United States and things like that. Absolutely, and, and uh, she came here in March, uh, right before the border shut, um, and was here until July. And then her campus had planned to be in person. In fact, starting on Monday, and so she returned at the end of July to get ready for that. And right after she returned, they 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 faced reality and said, "No, we're going to go online." So, so she's down there right now, 
I'll probably go down there in the fall if I can be assured I'll be able to re-enter Canada <laughs> after after uh, going down there. And also, of course, I'd like them to try and get their act together as far as the, uh, the pandemic goes to for my own health and hers. Well, I appreciate the your, your candid answer and and also you mentioning the types of assignments. So that actually leads really well into the the next question I had. So uh, I was curious because I learned about your both your close listening and the archive assignments. I found that really striking. It struck me as a very interesting example, at least in terms of an undergraduate, which is I presume where you were doing them, as a really interesting digital humanities project. Yeah. So I was hoping that you could provide the audience with a little bit of background of what the projects entail and what led to their creation, but also how students have responded to them. Sure. So I can start with the archive projects. I think the archive projects um, are related to the, the online audio uh, projects. So I'll just start. So we're fortunate at the University of Calgary to have uh, extensive um, archives of important uh, Canadian writers such as Alice Munro, uh, Mordecai Richler, Robert Croach. We have a particularly strong collection of Alberta writers, not surprisingly, including Croach, Aretha Van Herp, who teaches in our department, Rudy Weeb, and, and others. And so um, for many years now, I've had students um, go into our archives and uh, you know look at these papers, compare drafts of, um, of say, a, a poem or a, or a novel to the finished version of the novel and then sort of write essays that um, you know, investigate or consider the, the significance of variance, that is differences between the drafts of these texts and the completed, completed texts. Um, I did that for a couple of reasons. One was to introduce students to primary research. Uh, some of them will go on to graduate work and it's, uh, it's um, I think, a useful skill for them to have ahead of that. Um, second, I think they, they learn about sort of material conditions under which writing is produced. I mean, Alice Monroe has won a Nobel Prize uh, we often might think that, uh, you know, she just, she just sits down in a story sort of born, fully born from her head or something like that. And so being able to see the uh, writing process as evidenced in the, the draft materials, I think, is a, is a good lesson in, in how art is made, how that literary art is made. And it also reminds students that if they want to improve their writing, uh, drafting revision is the best way to go about it. Um, third, I think it teaches a, a different kind of close reading um, that's... Uh, that isn't asking them to do something that they've kind of learned and, and internalized how to do since, since high school, right? Which is fine, you know, that the five core, you know, do a close reading of this poem, um, write a five paragraph essay or what have you. Uh, this is asking them to closely read a poem in, in a different way. And, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's a useful experience. Um, students have overwhelmingly, I think, reacted well to these assignments. I think they, they like the thrill of archival research. And if you haven't done it, it may sound weird. Uh, think about going into a reading room and, and being thrilled by the experience, but I, I do think they, they get excited by that. There's a kind of ceremony there. They have to go in and make a request. They wheel out a card. So you're looking through these documents. Now, I work on contemporary writing, so these documents are not, you know, 400 years old. They're 40 years old in some cases or what, what have you. Uh, but I think there's still a kind of thrill of, um, of kind of looking at history, you know, through, uh, through the, uh, the evidence in, in the archive. And then I um, moved from that to, uh, to asking students not just to sort of look at existing materials, uh, but to also to, to begin to work with the library to digitize these materials. Uh, partly because uh, I was concerned, and so was the library, that having you know, groups of 40 or 60 or 75 students every year going through, the, combing through these papers was increasing the possibility of these papers being damaged or, or go, going missing or, or being disordered or, or what have you. Um, and so uh, asking students to digitize these materials themselves um, 
played a role in sort of pre preservation, but it also got students to sort of think about, or hopefully got students to think about the implications of digitizing the archive, right? What is sort of lost uh, and what is gained through the process of making these archival materials available online rather than in the sort of in-situ situation um, of, of a physical, physical archive. And so those projects started, I guess, about six years ago now. And we built up a pretty decent archive of student projects over the years. It's, people can view that at Omeka. It's an Omeka project. Omeka, O-M-E-K-A dot ucalgary.ca. Um, and then that kind of segued into this idea of sort of, you know, uh, making duplicates or remediating existing archives. I wanted students to start to create their own archives. And the best way to do that was through, through sound. Now, the sound work... Um, intersected with um, a Canada-wide, in fact, a North America-wide um, research project called the Spoken Web. Um, and a couple, its uh, primary investigator is uh, Professor Jason Camelot at Concordia University. And um, it's a project to basically digitize and link all of the audio, literary audio collections in all, all Canadian libraries that are participating in the project as well as um, private collections um, across, across the country. And we have um, involved or included in the, in the project uh, professors from, say, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, who, who launched Penn Sound, which is probably the most significant online collection of literary audio in the world uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, we've, in, we've involved um, faculty from the University of Texas, which uh, is a, a leading um, site for uh, research into uh, into literary audio, uh, doing uh, sort of um, using com computer, I guess what's it called, machine assisted. I think it's a term, machine assisted uh, uh, research, where uh, where say computers can listen to vast amounts of audio and sort of examine say applause uh, and sort of analyze uh, the, the volume of applause, the length of applause, and then you can start to sort of think about you know do do men get louder applause than women do you know the, the, these kinds of research questions can be asked i'm sorry i'm like, uh, sort of sort of digressing there anyway back to my work here so a couple of projects uh, pedagogical projects i developed that sort of overlap with the spoken web one was a recording project um, where uh, students in my canadian literature classes in, in groups were going to literary readings in the community we went we, we had to uh, focus on one particular reading series so um, it was the flywheel reading series, uh, which happens every, or did happen, uh, live every Thursday at Pages Books in Kensington. And students, uh, first of all, went there. We, we actually, I got a grant that paid for uh, top of the line equipment um, and research assistant, uh, and the research assistant worked with the undergrad students um, who went and recorded these readings. And then they would segment, uh, again, working with the research assistant, segment these recordings, um, excerpt, um, particular text, poems, excerpts of fiction or what have you, and share those on the Mecca site as well, and then write essays about the text that they selected. So here was a chance to basically uh, ask students to engage with literature as it's being created, like in our, in our community, right? And in some cases, there were governor general winning poets who were reading their works. In other cases, there were students who, uh, you know, have a chapbook out and they were up there reading it and, and people were writing essays about, about their work. And that was also a very well-received project. Um, and it also was a great way of sort of bringing, um, you know, contemporary writing into the classroom because uh, we had a, a week sort of devoted to, to writing at Calgary where uh, the whole class would listen to these recordings and we discuss them in class. Were those uh, recordings in pages 
That's interesting. Those were also then archived as well later. They're archived again on the Omeka site. Right. What, all, what we also did was the, the library was a partner in this, and I, I can't emphasize enough how great our library has been and the importance of having um, supportive librarians. Uh, our head of uh, archives and special collections, Annie Murray, very happily yeah. has a, an English background. Uh, she has a graduate degree in English before she went to do graduate, graduate work in, in library sciences. But from her on down, everyone's just been fantastic, um, both the archivists, um, people on the tech side uh, as well. Um, yeah, so those recordings are available also on the Omeka site that I mentioned uh, earlier. And, and, and also the library is archiving the entire, or archived in that particular year, all the recordings. And so the, um, the participants, the readers, had to sign off and, and give their permission to have these uh, recordings go into our, our library. So it became part, and we had hoped it would be ongoing. It's sustainability is always a problem with these, these uh, projects because, you know, I will go on leave or I will have an admin and then you no know, one's teaching this course, for example, and, and then so that it doesn't happen, right? Um, or or we're, not, we're not doing it in the summer or, or what have you. But at least for one year, we have one year's worth of flywheel recordings um, in our in our library. Uh, so it's, it's, and again, I think that um, this work, the, the work asking students to, to digitize um, existing archival materials um, and the work of recording, making these recordings, I think undergrads get, get, um, get a kind of thrill, I might say, out of contributing to the sort of research infrastructure of the university and know that they're, 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 they themselves are leaving behind a kind of legacy uh, you know, from their university experience. Well, I, I think that's a great that's a great point. I mean, and I you're talking about uh, students being facilitators in the creation of history, which is archival material, right? And I can speak. I don't try not to interject myself too much in these podcasts, but having interviewed people for doing historical research in archives, that's how I got involved in scholarship first. Interviewing, you know, early Canadian Italian immigrants. And then having their interviews go into, say, archives in the Okanagan region is yeah. pretty cool because those are going to be listened to. I'm curious about, it's interesting because in a face-to-face -face environment, which is what we're used to, students can go to the archives. Um, they can see, like, you, I love the, what you said about the ceremony, the, the process of taking out. So they appreciate how these are cataloged and how much effort it takes to bring the materials and all the people involved. Plus, they, if they're working with the uh, the audio materials and working on their creation, then they understand some of the digitization and, and all the other things about digitizing the paper documents that you suggested. Do you think there'll be a greater demand for that as a result of us moving online, even if that's only temporary? Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have foreseen this pandemic, but I'm very glad that I initiated these projects a few years ago because now with the, you know, with my course going on, the online course I'm developing for the winter, um, I now have a ready-made sort of, uh, you know, online resource of archival materials I can ask students to work with when they're not going to be able to go into the library. And in fact, I have a meeting right after this with, uh, with an archivist in the library who's going to uh, um, facilitate uh, those um, projects for me by digitizing some more materials for me this, uh, this, uh, this fall. So yes, I think, um, I mean, when we were... I, I taught, in fact, advanced seminars um, around the question of archives and digitizing the archive um, and asked students to sort of, you know, read a lot of theory about ar archiving, read a lot of theory about, you know, the implications of digitizing the archive. And, you know, I, I always had in the back of my mind, you know, that we don't, well, while digitizing the archive is, um, is important, we, we don't want to ever lose the material archive, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because what about, what about the event of a, you know, 
solar flare wipes out wipes out everything digital or what have you. Um, now, of course, with the pandemic, uh, you know, you realize even more the limitations of in situ archives and 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 in situ materials. Uh, the assumption always was that we'd be able to move around, right? Uh, in the absence of you know a catastrophic event such as this or a war or or what have you. So, yeah, it's um, it was uh, a fortunate sort of coincidence, maybe not a coincidence, um, but it was fortunate certainly that. Uh, these projects were initiated a couple of years ago. It reminds me of the flexibility that um, libraries often talk about when they're talking about backing up materials. There's a there's a fairly famous project in libraries, particularly for backing up uh, scholarly journals that are hosted by universities, as well as other documents called LOCKS, which stands for lots of copies keep stuff safe, exactly. which is I a big well. uh, yeah. So <laughs> it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the other issue I think with our, and it's great to talk to you as a librarian because you'll know about this. Um, with any archive, material archive, there's there's a continual sort of um, process of decay, and, and not just through the decay of the materials themselves, but through a kind of winnowing process. So I mean, so you know, the, the writers' papers come in in these boxes, and, and the archivist that that describes the boxes has to decide what goes into the archive and what doesn't, and, and they will inevitably exclude some materials, right? They will say, well, this is a this is just a scrap of paper um, with um, with a list of uh, you know phone numbers on it or or, or to do a to do list, and that doesn't need to go in the archive. It's not a literary material, what have you. But of course, that's reducing the size of the archive. And then, as we digitize, right, inevitably, not everything will get digitized, and so the archive will, will continue to, to shrink. And not only that, when you digitize, as you know, you're moving a three three dimensional object into two dimensions, right. Uh, which which again imposes a new limitation. Chris, who's, who's I guess not Chris, my student, who invited me to be part of this, will know that last year we had, um, for example, um, the um, uh, the actual stone hammer from the stone hammer poem by Robert Croach, which is in our archive, mm -hmm. uh, brought into our class. Now, uh, students try to digitize that that three dimensional object in, in different ways, but you know, it never quite recreates the. Uh, you know the the actual object itself, and so there's many limitations to digitization. You have to keep in mind as as well as the advantages. And of course, the main advantage is uh, is it enables access. Mm -hmm. No, I 100% agree. And not just the digital access, but you can also you know when working with audio, you can slow it down. You can segment it. When working with with text, you can you can zoom in and, and clarify and so on and so forth. There's also tools to to um, facilitate the reading of difficult documents as well. Didn't quite finish. I'm sorry. I'm speaking of such links here, I didn't quite finish with the final um, sort of audio archive project uh, that I've had students do, and this is directly related to spoken web. And it's having students go to existing audio archives, um, either in our library because we've been we've been digitizing our literary audio, or through sites like uh, like the spoken web site, um, and then getting them to um, listen to po listen to poets read poems that we are studying, for example. Mm -hmm. Or re listen to poets read poems that we're not studying, uh, and then um, say, take segments from those readings, share them with the class, write essays about them, and then we listen to them in class. And I mean, that's literary audio has always been a big part of my pedagogy. You know, but back in the day, it was you know before there were widespread sites, you'd have to bring tapes into the class, right? Put them in a tape recorder and, and play it. But I think that. Um, you know, again, listening to 
um, a poet from the 1960s read it and reading and listening to audience reaction, applause, listening to them sort of introduce themselves or introduce the poem, listening to their voice. You know, once you hear them uh, read a poem um, in their voice, especially if it's a very distinctive voice, like someone like, like, someone like Gwendolyn McEwen, for example, mm -hmm. uh, when you read that poem, quote unquote, silently on the page, uh, you'll hear that voice, at least I do, yeah, when you hear it, and it, it, it um, shapes and expands, I think, uh, the meaning of the text. And so adding on to that, um, we wanted to provide a bit of a student perspective to Dr. Reens's assignments as well. And so I've actually reached out to two of my peers um, who I'd like to quickly thank, the uh, wonderful Danielle Wong and the lovely Michelle Tang. Um, they've shared their papers and assignments with us, uh, and I have mine posted as well, so we'll link to those in the show notes below. Um, but something that's really interesting from how we understand literature is that we kind of see that the, the field of English is kind of growing and becoming more dynamic. And what I mean by that is in terms of the archive assignment, um, between the digitizing of the actual materials themselves, there's actually a lot of external factors that are kind of introduced. Um, and we kind of talk about how uh, understanding the kind of physical manifestation of the books themselves and um, the mediums by which we actually understand literature is continually changing. Of course, there's the introduction of audiobooks now. Um, we also introduce things like digital reading structures and how the page change when you look at something on a tablet or a Kindle as opposed to holding a physical book. Um, but in particular context of the archive assignment, my archive of choice was actually the McGill Fortnightly Review, which is um, a magazine that comes out of McGill University in Montreal. And so the archives that I actually accessed are all online and all digital. And so being able to access those kind of archives or digital materials from around the world. And then having, you know, whether the fax machine or the scan machine was actually pro um, functioning properly that day or kind of other artifacts that might be introduced can kind of inform your reading and what actually shows of the actual archives themselves um, actually changes. And so that's actually interesting as well because um, some of my peers also would write on physical um, objects or pieces of art kind of found around the world. and. Of course, you could write in this in the past by actually traveling or maybe looking at a, at a certain photograph, but kind of between different um, ideas such as Google Earth and other kind of virtual travel, um, there's actually such great more versatility in terms of accessing uh, these types of objects and these types of um, works of art and being able to comment on them, which speaks to the, the changing um, digitization of the world and how that kind of influences um, our academic understanding of them. And so kind of shifting to that close listening assignment as well, uh, a lot of the things that you know, we are asked to look at include you know, counting the beats per minute, um, use, uh, utilizing technology to kind of get these scientific measures of what are the actual um, frequencies and hertz that kind of come out of an individual speaker, um, a performer or author, poet or whatever, uh, and kind of how that understands and informs our reading. And what's interesting about that is definitely, you know, it's not necessarily a, a exact science um, depending on the mic placement, the decibels will change. Um, depending on the, the size of the room, the, the author's tone will shift as well. And the degradation of, of the audio over the years and when it was recorded and the transfer from analog to digital and um, this audio file could go on f with this for quite a while. But kind of the point of all of this is to say that the, the understanding of the art itself goes beyond the physical text and can kind of expand into more dimensional, more dynamic means that really brings the art alive. And I think that's the beauty of um, literature and art as a whole. So that's something that's very interesting to, to kind of 
dive into and it's something that we really really appreciate as students because i think there's different insights that different people can have um, and different kind of emotional reader responses that you get out of these more dynamic responses and that's that's really key to understanding and unpacking a lot of this art something i wanted to comment on as well is the kind of continuing change in the field of english and how our understanding is constantly shifting um, i'd just like to give a quick reference as well to another um, fantastic professor I've had at the University of Calgary, which is Dr. Bart Beatty, and his specialization is in comics. Um, and so having a dynamic understanding of different um, forms of comics is something that's very interesting as well. We talk about kind of digitized um, digital comics that you can kind of have, uh, as Scott McLeod says, the um, infinite canvas, which is something that um, Dr. Beatty um, teaches us on, kind of expands beyond just the physical page, but you actually can have a three-dimensional space. You have um, much more complex, long kind of ways of delivering the um, literature itself, and that in of itself is also very insightful. So uh, perhaps a, a very different um, way of approaching how we understand a lot of the literature, but from a student perspective, definitely much appreciated on the technological tools definitely support that in terms of analyzing the nitty-gritty scientific beats per minute, the hertz, the decibels, all of that is just fantastic. I have a question. It's, we, don't, we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but it's interesting because I have heard from faculty um, at different institutions, particularly my, some of my colleagues in the United States, there's a bit of a debate between volume of writing and creating constraints to force people to dig deep because of course volume of writing is great for practice i think you have to write a lot to get good at it but in terms of the really deep analysis i, I always think back to my um one of my profs james rockland at ubc and he would say the paper has to be 10 pages exactly yeah. no more no less and you have to use this many sources and it has to be 50 percent your own idea he would he would introduce these somewhat arbitrary constraints but you really had to dig deep to create a, a good analysis. And I wonder if that more of those kinds of assignments is better than perhaps uh, people writing ad nauseum. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I mean, the student who's complaining about the six pages, hey, as someone who has to mark these, I welcome reducing it to four in, in many cases, right? Um, and, but in some ways, <laughs> um, I remember as an undergrad, the four page paper is it's a lot more challenging to, uh, to write it effectively than, than the six pages, right? Um, and I think that uh, I could tell from some of these assignments that in some cases, some students could have gone on for, for 10 pages uh, as well. Um, so yes, I, I think that, uh, I mean, the, the general, uh, I think, assumption um, within English departments is that as students move through their degree, they should progressively write longer and longer papers. Um, I myself have not uh, probably examined that assumption enough I think um, we tend to um, develop our undergrads as if every single one of them is going to go to graduate school, which is not the case, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's just the model we work on, and, and it probably could uh, be interrogated uh, a little bit. So I, I, do, I do share your, uh, maybe your um, uh, questioning of, uh, of the need for, uh, for length. Um, as Shakespeare said, brevity is a source of wit, right? Yeah, I love that quote too, and it, it perhaps is a good uh, 
a discussion item for for Chris and I when we have our discussion items on our our regular episodes. I want to come back to you about your uh, administrative role in in some sense because I have a question um, about administration, but also encouraging creativity. And I wondered if you could draw some light on this. So I, I really appreciate you talking about the assignments you designed and why, because I think that behind thinking of why assignments are created is the spark that allows other people to do that. But having served as the associate head in your department, what do you think the best strategy for administrators or department heads is uh, to encourage the development of new creative student assignments by your colleagues? Like what is the thing that gets people going? And what I'm really asking about, it doesn't have to be just distance. I mean, that's, I'm hoping that's temporary, but it, it is relevant in, in the pandemic. But what are the things that really get people jazzed to reframe their assignments or redesign them? What's the best encouragement they can get from the leaders in their departments? Well, it's, it's difficult because, I mean, the model of the university is is that the professors enjoy considerable autonomy in everything that they do, um, including uh, course design and teaching and, and, and so on. And, and so it's not so much a top-down model, I think, of asking our colleagues. It, it certainly became one under COVID, but even then it was, uh, they were given considerable uh, latitude in terms of how they were going to move their courses off online. Um, so it's not so much that we, um, you know, you know, department meetings or what have you, or email email communications will say, you know, why not try and develop a new, you know, a new assignment? Or, but you know, in the face of this pandemic, for example, we can, you know, develop say, workshops on, on, and, and invite each other to come and share their ideas about how how do you do an exam online? How do you do an exam that's still rigorous, still fair, and that can account for you know, um, an open book situation, uh, for example. But in my own role, you know, in improving course outlines, right, the course outlines come across my desk. I guess when I see uh, colleagues developing new assignments, when I when I respond to them, I will, you know, mention it and um, and encourage it. And and in some cases, you know, I will, in fact, ask if I can borrow that idea and, and adopt it into my own my own classes. Um, not all colleagues are as interested in pedagogy as, as others are, uh, and which is which is fair. Um, and and so. You know, um, I know which colleagues are especially interested in that and will, you know, engage them in, in what used to be hallway conversations, right? About uh, what are you doing? You know, what's, how, how's that assignment going in your class? Here's what I'm doing in my class, that, that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. I, I also know um, the leadership in terms of teaching and learning innovations also comes from higher up than me. It comes from the, the dean's office, uh, usually the associate dean. Uh, our associate dean, Don Johnston, for example, has been mm -hmm. very um, sort of proactive in um, inviting colleagues from across the faculty to uh, workshops um, on teaching innovations and, and so on. And I think that the Taylor Institute, the existence of the Taylor Institute has, has just been uh, fantastic. Um, for all of us, um, especially those of us who are interested in, in pedagogy, it's um, very, I, I would say it's, it's money well spent. That's a very useful resource. And I think it's enhanced teaching considerably across our university. I know one thing that's come up, Jason, that I think about is that there's been some discussion about the kind of decline over the last few decades of, of academics uh, having perhaps a public face other than you know, a few. It used to be a little bit more common that academics would do public lectures, um, maybe be on news media, 
CBC Radio is probably a, probably a, a good steward of this because a number of academics talk mm -hmm. on that. But it's interesting because I do you think that if that is true, do you think well I do think that's true, and do you think that that has an effect that that more public sharing on inspiring people to create new teaching and learning assignments or do something take risks in the classroom? I don't know if we have as much uh, sharing about about teaching um, in the public. I do think that we are sharing um, or, or, you know, or engaging with media platforms um, or make, delivering public lectures as much as we, we always have been. Uh, for example, uh, last, well, the winter previous, um, the Calgary Public Library, the new central library had an initiative and I think about eight or nine of us from our department went out and gave, gave one lecture per month in our area of uh, specialization. So I went out on a very cold February night to give a lecture about uh, the archives at, uh, at UC, which was which was actually sparsely attended, not, not surprisingly. Um, the lecture that was given by our children's literature professor on Harry Potter was you know, packed uh, to overflowing. Uh, the, the Jane Austen lecture was a popular one and, and, and so on. So, and I myself also and a number of our colleagues uh, give uh, lectures for the Literary Kaleidoscope Society, which is an organization in the community that uh, um, invites professors from both USC and Mount Royal to come give lectures on, on books that they select. And then uh, people from the community pay money to come and hear the lecture and then they use that money to uh, provide um, awards for our students. So it's a nice sort of, sort of loop there. But as far as um, lectures in the public about uh, teaching um, or about pedagogy, there isn't a lot of that. I mean, when I gave my lecture in the public library, I talked about that because that's that's what I do with the archives, right? But uh, that was not necessarily the, uh, the focus. So that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think about colleagues in other departments. I mean, probably, you know, people in political science are the ones that are most asked to offer their opinions mm -hmm. on radio or television for obvious obvious reasons, but they're usually asked to comment on, on contemporary events and not on, on teaching. I always think about it because I think, well, parents listen to this. They send their their kids to university or at least help. It would be interesting. I think I think I wonder sometimes if there is a public appetite for that, but that's totally speculative. Yeah, no, I think I think it probably is to know what's going to go on in the in the university classroom now. Um, because, you know, uh, a lot of those parents would have gone to university themselves and probably imagine that it's much the same. And in some cases, and in some classrooms, it probably is exactly the same as, as what they did, only there's PowerPoint mm -hmm. instead of a blackboard up there, right? Um, yeah. but it, no more transparencies. Yeah. But, but what an English major does now, um, at least in my classes and others, is very different from what they were doing when I was an undergraduate in the 1990s. One of the reoccurring themes on this podcast has been about communication and collaboration strategies when teaching online. I, I think I can't, I don't have any data to prove this, but my opinion is that that's probably one of the biggest areas of anxiety for people who haven't taught online before, the idea of the cold open, because it can be kind of an awkward silence. Can you speak a little bit to strategies or, or that you use to communicate with students online? So that could be asynchronously or synchronously. Um, and how you encourage that collaboration or would encourage that collaboration in an, in an online environment? Yeah, it's sort of ironic because, uh, you know, I was developing an online course before the pandemic hit, but then because of my administrative role, I was not sort of thrown into the deep end the way all my colleagues were. And so in mm -hmm. some ways, uh, my colleagues who hadn't had the benefit of the sort of um, months of consideration of these questions um, were sort of forced to confront them and, and might be able to answer uh, better than, than I will. Um, I would say 
you know, that you want to find a way to sort of establish a social, a consistent social presence uh, immediately and sort of throughout the, the term. So, I mean, I, I would always want to have some synchronous elements, so Zoom meetings or, or what have you. Um, but I mean, that, that becomes a challenge considering, depending upon the, the class size, right? I think um, a videotaped introductory lecture, I think in the domestic environment, uh, which you know, sort of humanizes the professor. Um, I don't have any pets, uh, but I know my colleagues that do would probably involve their pets in these, uh, in these introductory lectures or what have you. I also think inviting the students. Uh, many students are understandably shy to speak, just as shy to speak on camera as they are to speak in class. Um, so finding ways for them to introduce themselves um, through either video or audio or maybe some sort of innovative way to do that can create a sense of, of community. It's going to be tough, I think. Um, it's tough enough to create a sense of community and sort of um, responsibility to, to one another when everyone's sitting in the same classroom because they get up in that classroom and they go, go their separate ways, right? Um, and they all have to raise, their lives are you know, far more complicated, I think complex, not complicated, but complex than they were when I was an undergraduate. Um, mm -hmm. And so much of their lives are online now and so on, and that, that further isolates them from each other. Um, so sort of finding ways to connect them in the face-to-face -face classroom is already a challenge. It's gonna be, be more of one um, as, we, as we move online. I think uh, breaking the class down into smaller units and having students work on projects uh, together, express their frustrations that the unreasonable demands of the projects, uh, for example, uh, together can build a sense of uh, community, you know, in these smaller, in these smaller groups. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, um, and then of course the discussion board, you know, uh, which is an, an imperfect uh, way of, of duplicating um, the classroom discussion experience. On the other hand, you know, from my experience, uh, classroom discussions are often um, sort of dominated by the same, you know, the same people who are most most engaged. And in some ways, um, discussion boards, especially when you have a kind of clear rubric about expectations, um, invites participation from all from everybody. But it's you know it's dif difficult because it's not all happening at the same time. It's asynchronous by definition, right? So. Is that on, on that question? I think so. I think that's really good, and I, I appreciate that. And and on that note, uh, I was I was talking to a, a couple of colleagues uh, in in different institutions, and and they felt we were discussing the pandemic socially, and they felt that in some ways it, it was harder. And I don't really remember their reasons, but they felt it was harder sometimes for the humanities to make that that transition, and that was striking to me. I, I didn't really understand why, but is there any last um, parting advice that you would give to particularly people in the humanities, though I think it would apply to the social sciences as well. Things that have worked outside of what you just said, other things about teaching online uh, or kinds of educational tools or technologies that you have consistently returned to that have been valuable. Yeah, I think, I mean, to your earlier points um, about it being more difficult to transition humanities, humanities experience online, I think that's because in the humanities, um, learning is a collaborative effort and it's, it's produced collectively. Um, and that it's not an information delivery model, unlike say some, some of the hard sciences, for example, uh, where the professor lectures and answers, answers questions and, and they sort of move on. Um, I would think that you, know, you just ask about, about 
you're saying ways to encourage um, collaborative learning um, beyond what I've already suggested. I or any online teaching tips that have been very valuable to your own uh, instruction style. One, one thing I'm going to introduce, I, so this is, I haven't tried this yet. One thing I'm going to introduce, uh, I'm gonna have multiple choice exams, um, online exams, open book multiple choice exams. And one thing I'm going to introduce is an option for the students to write their own questions and contribute them to a question bank. And I think that'll have, that'll have several benefits. One, um, I, and I will talk to them, I will answer their questions and explain to them, here's the format, here's what makes a good question in my opinion. Here's what you have to take into consideration. How can you make it fair? How, how can you make it not too hard and not too easy? And then having students sort of think through, how do I design a question? Um, you know, thinking through how to ask a question about a text, we'll teach them something about that text, right? And then students are motivated. You don't even have to assign a grade to this. They're motivated to create these questions, I would expect, because if their question gets selected to be on a, on a test, then they know the answers to that question, right? They, because they designed it. Also, they make these questions available to the whole class prior to the test being given. And the whole class can sort of think about, think through these questions as well. And I would have no problem, um, you know, perhaps slightly modifying these, these questions and putting them on a multiple choice exam, knowing that the class has gone through this kind of process of considering them. Uh, because the, the point of the, of the multiple choice test is, is not to punish students, it's to measure their learning. And, and, uh, and in, if you can actually use the test process, the preparation process and development process as a, as a tool to assist learning, um, I think that could, that could be a, a great benefit. Students care about their grades. Um, and uh, so that's a, a very sort of self-motivating exercise. Um, that's one strategy. Again, I haven't tested it yet. So it's, a, it's an untrue strategy, but I'm going to try it. And I would encourage um, uh, colleagues to, to consider something that's, like that as well. It's a pretty interesting experiment. Almost sounds like Jeopardy. You know, on the note of the um, online tests that you're doing that are open book uh, and it's multiple choice, like how do you, what's your strategy for preventing cheating then? Well, if you're if you're designing it as open book, then then you know them consigning their books is not cheating. So the only forms of cheating then that can arise would be um, collaboration, um, and again, an open book would also imply that you know the entire resources of the internet are also available to them. So first of all, you have to design a question which takes into account uh, that they have the internet and their and their book uh, available to them. So simply a simple question about you know basic facts or definitions are, are out. So what you need to design then are uh, questions that ask them to apply their knowledge. Um, so to, to a new text, for example, or to compare two texts they, they've looked at. Um, but the way to sort of address the question of collaboration, and again, you know, these are a minority of students that are going to be tempted to go that route. But when you get classes of 75, a minority becomes a considerable, considerable amount, right? Um, but what I've done is uh, create test banks um, of say, if you have a te test that's going to have 25 questions, create a bank that has 35 in it, and then randomize the, the questions that are drawn from the test bank. I talked about that last week with, uh, in a workshop with my colleagues about online assessments. Um, one colleague uh, questioned the fairness of that, that you know, the principle that all students should write the same test. Um, and I understand that, that question. Um, but if you have a large enough test bank, I would think that the sample size would be large enough that, you know, and yes, of course, there's some questions that are going to be harder than others, and, and some questions are going to be easier than others, and some some students aren't going to get this one, and some aren't going to get that one, and that might raise concerns about fairness. But I, my response was that um, that the larger 
um, challenge to fairness would be collaboration or, or academic dishonesty, and this is one way of, of frustrating that. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense to have a test bank and then randomize it. Uh, do you normally do this to, in your face-to-face -face classes as well? Well, in face-to-face, -face, you can have a closed book exam situation, so I haven't done that. Although, again, last year in uh, my, three, my, my Canadian literature class in the fall, I, I was very open with the students that I was designing the class to be online, and I told them that a lot of what we're doing is going to be online because of that, and they accept, they, they seemed okay with that. Um, in fact, well, what I did there was I had a midterm, and, and I guess um, either I designed it too difficult or students knew it was open book and maybe didn't prepare as much as they might have. Uh, anyway, the, the, the results of that exam were, were disappointing, uh, and so I created a second one. Uh, later, for later to cover the material later in the term, they could write to replace that earlier grade. So the, the class average on the first one was 59%, um, which was too low. And the class average on the second one was 71%, which is right in the sweet spot of, of B minus, which is probably where you want the exam to be. All right. Well, maybe we'll just move to the rapid fire questions then. Uh, Jason, these ones are pretty simple. Uh, you don't have to go and uh, give any kind of real explanation. They're kind of like one word answers. So. Are you ready? I think so. Okay, first, Mac versus PC. Mac. iPhone or Android? Android. Standing or sitting desk? <laughs> sitting. Okay, ebook or paper? Paper. Synchronous, asynchronous, or hybrid? Hybrid. Cable or streaming? I'll say streaming increasingly. Okay, and uh, your choice of uh, platform for streaming? Well, YouTube right now. Okay, web browser? Huh. Safari's been cruel to me lately. I need to update it, so it's Chrome right now. All right. Uh, for video conferencing, what's your favorite? Zoom. Mr. Rogers or Mr. Dressup? Mr. Dressup. Okay, favorite poet? Oh, uh, that's a tough one to uh, an English professor. Oh, what am I going to answer? So I always can I say top five. Sure, sure. John Keats, Gerard Manley Hopkins, Laurie Niedeker, uh, Emily Dickinson, and John Donne. Okay, and coffee or tea? And one last thing, it came from your Rate My Professor reviews, but what makes you huggable? <laughs> uh, maybe my sense of humor. <laughs> I'm hoping. Well, maybe if this wasn't a COVID uh, kind of situation, we'd probably be giving you hugs right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I could use a hug. <laughs> All right. That's awesome. We really expanded these questions uh, for just for your interview. This is the first one where we've gone more than three. So that was fun. I'm sorry if I was a little loquacious. I can get excited talking about this kind of stuff. Oh, I love the answers. That, that was fantastic. Great. That was fantastic. So, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Jason Weens, I wanted to just thank you again. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure for you to take the time out to speak to us about this. And I think our listeners are going to greatly appreciate the perspective you've brought, uh, the experience, your discussions about your assignments and why you created them. And that's kind of why we're doing this. So I just wanted to thank you again. This is a hugely valuable to us and, and the people who tune in. Thank you very much. The pleasure is all mine.
Yeah, no, thank you very much. Uh, is there any kind of last comments that you wanted to add uh, regarding the technology in your research or uh, just in terms of when you're teaching? I'll say that uh, it's interesting that you're asking me to talk about this because um, I was amongst those who were uh, more resistant to teaching the earlier, or sorry, to technology in the earlier part of the century, sort of um, skeptical about its uh, its benefits. So I I held on to the overhead projector as long as I could, but uh, but I've uh, I've gone over to the to the other side. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you again. Uh... Hey, I hope you know. I hope you guys got some good stuff there. Oh, I think so. I think that was awesome. And it's really, really a pleasure to talk to someone in, in the humanities because I think it's, uh, again, I think it's an interesting perspective that is about teaching and education technology that's not often heard. Thank you. For more information about EdTech Examined, visit edtechexamined.com. If you have tech questions you'd like us to answer, you can reach us at our email, hey at edtechexamined.com. You can also find us on Twitter at edtechexamined. Tag your posts with the hashtag edtechofficehours, and we might feature your question on a future episode. Until next time. realizing I didn't include any Canadian poets in the that's <laughs> okay <laughs> top 10 oh well. <laughs> exactly well my mind just went right to the canon right so